Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And you remembered this time. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and today, I'm very proud of myself, too. <laughs> yes, that you are. Today, we're bringing you survive stories. Like, I, I'm, I'm specifically covering an I Survived from like the episode, the TV show I Survived or whatever. Not whatever. It, that is what it is. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> anyway, what, this is our second time recording this episode. Uh, <laughs> because with new mics comes new issues that we didn't Great responsibility <laughs> that I fucked up. It was me. I'm the problem. This time. It was me. I didn't, I don't know. I had something. I had, I kept hitting switches until it sounded right. Um... But that but when was you do like, that in the middle of a recording, apparently it doesn't work so well. Yeah, and that's what I did. And I just kept changing things. And it just didn't sound right. So I'm sorry, Kelsey. She ended up releasing an episode that was supposed to be released next week. So you guys aren't getting the joint. It doesn't matter because you already didn't get the joint. You guys will get the joint when you get the joint. Okay? And this is the joint. Um episode <laughs> speaking of like not being able to follow in my own train of thought yesterday um i i told you i didn't want to tell you until we got on here um because my husband and i we went out to dinner and uh, i was like ravenously hungry all day yesterday so i just like was just gorging on food which you know that's not me um i'm normally like a grazer and eat little bits here and there and then we get out to dinner and I can't hold a conversation and he was like did you did you not take your medicine today and I was like oh, oh. <laughs> I think I did I it might be a dud though like you know because the generics they say sometimes can be a, a dud and he goes or you just didn't take it and I was like you're probably <laughs> right um I didn't take my medicine yesterday <laughs> it was very obvious it typically uh, is yikes. and I appreciate you not doing that to me while you were here I, I really do you're welcome I almost did it a few days while I was there because I was like oh you know I'm on vacation I don't have to like be on it but um I didn't subject you to that anyway what are we drinking um Samantha you have water Yes, I do. Kelsey has a Truly. You're welcome for those who enjoy our Trulies. <laughs> it's a pick your poison. I made a smoked caramel latte cocktail, um, which is delicious. I don't really have the recipe because I just start. I forgot we were recording today, like re-recording. And so I just dumped a bunch of stuff in a glass with ice. So thank um, goodness for Kelsey who keeps us on track. Yes. So, you know, do that. Dump a bunch of stuff in a glass and cheers. I uh, hope it Samantha, works. you're first. All right. So take two. Um, for my joint survivor, I did not do an I survived, but it is a survivor story to a large extent. So and it won't be as good because we already recorded this. So Montana knows what I'm covering when it really sucks. But that's fine because she probably forgot at least half of it. So. Oh, yeah. At least half of it. At least. 
On October 4, 1991, in Scottsboro, Alabama, Darlene Summerford was rushed to the hospital with multiple snake bites on her wrist. At the time the paramedics arrived, it was reported that there was a substantial wound and it was weeping blood. The gash itself had already turned black and necrosis had begun to take root of her soft tissues. Her Daily Mail .co.uk, quote, it was black. Her skin was starting to die. That's when I got real concerned because if it get if that gets into your bloodstream, it can go to your heart, recalled David Kenamar, the on-call paramedic that evening. And again, I know I said this in the first episode or the first time we recorded it, but I'm going to reiterate this. This was when you were concerned. When, when things started turning black and necrosis, it wasn't the fact that a woman came in with multiple snake bites. Well, not come in, came in. Paramedic came to. Okay. Well, yeah. House, still, so. like, yeah. I I would, my concern would have already started. Like, it, yeah, I wouldn't sure. become concerned once I saw that it was turning like necrosis or what. Did you, like, How did this roll happen? around in a snake pit? Yeah. There's a story here. Please tell me more. And I plan to. Yeah. Darlene was (laughs) Darlene was initially taken to a local hospital, but because they had no anti-venom on hand, she had to be rushed to a different facility 90 miles away in Birmingham that had the anti-venom in stock. Obviously, time was of the essence, as rattlesnake venom can be deadly if not treated quickly. Though deaths now are quite rare since we do have anti-venom. Darlene was treated in time and survived. As far as I could tell from anything that I could find of her life afterwards, there were no long-term effects of the bites, though I'm sure just because of the necrosis already setting in, I'm sure her hand and or wrist was probably disfigured in some way, form or fashion, even if she had probably. So for the record, because not everybody lives their lives around looking out for snakes and doesn't know all that much about them, it is estimated that seven to 8,000 people per year are bitten by venomous snakes, and of that number, only about five are fatal. Though most fatal bites are due to rattlesnakes, the snake with the most incidence of bites is the copperhead, which Montana knows all too well. Yeah, they're frisky little bastards. I I don't remember if we talked about it on an episode of the podcast, but the new house that we bought, we killed, I think it was 13, it might have been 14 copperheads in our backyard this past summer. And uh, I I think they were like, it was a nest in the neighbor's yard. They had gotten into like some cement bricks. And so we'd see them coming out of that. And when the cicadas came out, because they eat cicadas, the cicadas would crawl up onto the fence in between our yard. And that's where we constantly found the copperheads were on or around that fence going for the cicadas. So uh, I don't want them killing my dogs. That's fair. And, and, well, and they're killing, sneaky little boogers too. Cause I mean, yeah. I've seen pictures of them in the wild and it's easy to possibly step on it if you're really not looking at what you're doing. Um, Cause they blend in pretty well in a lot of yeah. environments and unlike a rattlesnake that has something that like pops up and it like shakes around and it makes noise gives you a warning to, like warn you a copperhead doesn't it blends in with the foliage and they don't like pop up you know even like a black snake which is harmless will sometimes mimic the movement of a rattlesnake like mm-hmm. it'll flick its little tail around so that you won't get close to copperhead doesn't give a fuck he's like come and step on me bitch See what i will happens. show you who's boss so, 
Yeah. Um, we kill those at my house. <laughs> Fair enough. You do, you do have dogs. Yeah. Well, by comparison, rattlesnake bites are about four times as likely to result in death than copperheads. So there's that. There are many times that they are relatively harmless as long as you leave them alone. And they do eat a lot of vermin and that sort of thing around your yard if you don't have dogs that you have outside that could possibly be bitten by them. Well, and they don't typically get near humans, like where humans reside. They live in the woods away from humans. They don't, they're not a copperhead. They're not going to just like take up residency in your backyard. They're considerate like They're that. one of those few uh, animals that are scared of humans because they've learned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for those of us from the South, we learned a long time ago to be on the lookout for snakes and stay away if at all possible. So how did this happen to her? And Montana already knows and she actually guessed it right the I first time. I actually <laughs> guessed it. The first time we recorded it, I was like, um, I was so was disappointed. It? I was like, seriously? How? It's Alabama and it's a rattlesnake. It's multiple rattlesnake bites. I'll I'll give you all like two seconds to guess. Was it a church <laughs> snake situation? <sighs> anyway, <laughs> Darlene's terrible weekend started on Friday when her husband, 47-year-old Glenn Summerford, accused her of having an affair with another preacher. See, Glenn was the pastor, and I use that term loosely, of the Pentecostal congregation known as the Church of Jesus with signs following. They were described well, as a radical. Right yeah, I mean, just <laughs> what is it about these that they their their titles are so long? It, it's always like five to six words. Bare uh, minimum. I go to the Church of Jesus Christ plus bagels and locks, <laughs> add cream cheese, prayer and worship. Sounds fair. This group was described as a radical French Christian community, unsurprisingly. Um, mm. And I'll get more into them into them and their beliefs in just a minute. But let's get back to good old Glenn. He then decided that the appropriate punishment for this crime, and I say that with quotes because he has only accused her of it. He has no proof and she has not admitted to it was to force her hand in a snake cage until she was bitten and then deny her any access to medical attention. He sounds like a riot. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? That's such a weird response. I mean, even if you had snakes on hand, that's that's what you went with? Like, that's your go-to? You You immediately want to try to kill her with a snake bite, which, by the way... Your snakes are in cages, sir. So what were you planning on doing, making this seem like a, a accident when you first did it, or you just didn't think that far? Well, it just, it's so surprising to me. Like, he, he's obviously, like, not a smart dude. Duh. Number one. And he doesn't seem like a dude that puts a lot of effort into anything, because also, duh, this whole plan is stupid. But it just seems like a long road to get to the conclusion that we all know he wanted to get to. Like, there's so many easier and better ways to more just efficient, off somebody. More efficient. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not better. More efficient. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, um, it's never better to kill somebody in a different way. It's never good to kill any. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. It's more efficient <laughs> to do it in a different way. Like, this just seems so complicated also dramatic much i mean yeah, it's it's a bit dramatic it's it's giving 
Oh, God. What was her name from The Emperor's New Groove? Oh, Yzma. Yeah, it's giving Yzma vibes. (laughs) Pull up that that, that was such a weird, like, embarrassing. <laughs> I'm not getting embarrassed. Go on. I'm okay. Done. So the arguing continued after this, however, as Glenn was still not appeased, and I'm sure Darlene was screaming from pain and fright. I mean, she wasn't allowed to go to the hospital. So on Saturday, when Glenn was drunk again, because according to some reports, he was drinking and or drunk on both nights, he grabbed Darlene by her hair and dragged her to the snake cage again. This time, however, he told her that he would push her face into the cage if she didn't put her hand in. It was her choice. Wow, thanks. That's not a choice. Not really. Darlene later testified that he said he needed her to die so he could marry another woman. She also said that he hit the cage multiple times with a pipe to rile the snakes up prior to putting her hand into the cage. That's what's so frustrating to me about, like, these domestic abuse type of situations the person who's typically um cheating is the one who is going to accuse their partner of cheating because they're doing it and they're not smart enough to like recognize that that like fear of infidelity is actually their own guilt Mm -hmm. it's it's so it's such a weird thing it's um very uh familiar to me i got uh, yeah been there done that um never actually cheated but definitely got accused of it on more than one occasion to the extent of i actually asked i haven't done it but if i'm going to be guilty regardless of the decisions that i make you're kind of giving me no incentive to not at this point yeah should have just done it honestly uh fuck that dude (laughs) (laughs) Uh, see Glenn was known for keeping venomous snakes and at that time he had about 15 in cages in that shed and why was he keeping snakes Montana already guessed it Glenn was not just any preacher he was a preacher of a church that believed in snake handling for those listeners long complicated name (laughs) yeah true very long and complicated name which doesn't really make any sense either it's yeah, great it doesn't to put on really a sign. go with. <laughs> he act, <laughs> one of the pictures on the article was him hanging the sign, and oh my gosh, that sign was all kinds of handmade. For those listeners who haven't ever heard of this type of a church or a religious sect, however you look at it, I'll explain just a little bit about it. The religion is mostly attributed to the teachings of George Went Hensley, who was an American Pentecostal minister based in rural, it's always rural, Appalachia, and it's. It seems like it's always Appalachia, too. Around Mm -hmm. 1910, where he read slash heard scripture and interpreted it to mean that the New Testament commanded all Christians to handle venomous snakes. Yikes. So, quick note here, for those who do not know, I have read the Bible multiple times and I was raised in church. The specific scripture that was most often quoted for this belief has since been discovered and is usually notated in newer Bibles as being more than likely added at some point over time, as the oldest manuscripts that have been discovered and recovered of original scripture do not actually include these verses. So there's your fun fact for the day. It's, uh, I believe it's Mark 16, if I remember Great. correctly. Is that the one that they put up at football games? <laughs> Telling people to handle snakes? I don't think so. Oh, okay. That's, <laughs> it's... I think it has that to seems do like with an a odd John. thing to tell people to do at a football game, but who am I to judge? Montana, you're thinking of John three sixteen. 
Yeah. Oh, I, see, I, I don't know. I, I read the Bible a bunch growing up because uh, duh, I grew up in Alabama. Um, it was Bible Belt. Yeah. Curriculum in school. We were forced to do it. Don't remember any of it. The only thing I remember is that that dude, Jesus, turning water into wine. And I was like, bro, hit me up at my next party. As a kid. Go. Yeah, <laughs> as a kid. I, I was real wild. I wasn't. I was not. I don't know what I said. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, you, you grew into it. Let's put it that way. I did. I grew into my personality and it's just shining and wonderful. I'm, as it's I said, shining, before all right. <laughs> we started recording. I'm a Leo. We all <laughs> <Let's> know. <go. laughs> if there was ever a Leo, that's it. All right. So Hensley was actually illiterate. So I saw things that said he read the scripture, but he was illiterate. So I'm assuming he didn't actually read it. So maybe he somebody read it to him. I don't when he interpreted that. I don't know. It, it's kind of blur, blurry, but early audible. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. It was just another Appalachian person. Reading, reading off the Bible too. <laughs> in, the, in the original King James, of course. But despite this, um, he actually became an ordained minister of the Church of God in 1915 until 1922 when he resigned. And again, I said this on the first one. I'm going to say it again. The requirements for becoming an ordained minister uh, sound real loose if the majority of what you do is read scripture and come up with like, sermons sermons that you have to write out and he was illiterate so uh that you know if if you're struggling to find a career there you go you know and 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 this is this brings up the always interesting topic of how um some people just make stuff up instead of actually doing the research and presenting something for people uh based on research and what they have read and the audacity of mediocre men. Yeah, um, let's too. be real here. So during that time of the time that he was an ordained minister, he traveled throughout Tennessee teaching his snake handling doctrine. He was also married four times and had 13 children that we know of, but I'm sure he had more than that. I mean, just with the numbers recorded, I'm sure he had more than that. He was known to have problems with drinking, and that combined with his constant travel and lack of a stable income is what the first three wives cited as a reason for divorce, which, yeah, makes Big sense. yikes. After being arrested in Tennessee on moonshine-related charges during the time of the bro- prohibition, he eventually established churches known as the Church of God slash Jesus with signs following in Tennessee and Kentucky. The services were anything but anything between small house meetings to large gatherings with hundreds attending. At this point, there were laws in place forbidding snake handling, which I'm, I'm amazed that this even needed to be a law, but obviously it did. And he was arrested more than once for violating these laws. As a matter of fact, all Appalachian states except West Virginia, sorry, Kelsey, outlawed the snake handling ritual when it first emerged. Alabama, Kentucky, and Tennessee have since passed laws against the use of venomous snakes and other reptiles that endangers the lives of others without a permit. So make sure you get the correct paperwork to the government so they can get their taxes or whatever, and then you're good. It's really shocking to me that we have more regulations. Uh, Yeah, I'm about to say what I'm about to say, Uh, and you can cut it, Kelsey, if you don't want it in here, but we have more regulations on snake handling than we do on buying a 
fucking gun. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I brought that up last time. But yeah, oh, you did. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure I brought that up. Yeah, it's it's fascinating actually because I can actually own a gun, have it on me, and use it in the state of Alabama without a permit. But you know, if I'm going to be handling snakes and other reptiles and might endanger somebody, better have a permit. Yeah, I mean, me as somebody who is a felon, I can buy a gun. So, you know. Watch out. Well, there's yeah, actually watch, no recording in Alabama. I mean, it's you don't even have to have a bill of sale. Like, you can just sell it to somebody without any kind of paperwork, and there you go. Yeah. So I don't think I can do yeah. it in North Carolina. It, I, I just have to go to Alabama to do it. There you go. So, exactly. You then know. you're following the rules. Hey. So, for the record, there have been about 150 documented deaths from these rituals, but it is suspected that there are many more as those bitten rarely seek medical attention and believe that death due to the bite indicates a lack of faith or a sign from the Word of God that it was their time. No, that's a sign that God put something on this earth that doesn't want you to hold it, and you decided to hold it anyway, and you decided to play around with it until it got really pissed off and decided to bite you so it could try to get away. I'll never understand this, but why do, and I'm I'm not blanket saying this about all Christians, I'm saying like this specific type of Christian person, believe that God has the time or even like the want to watch your every snake handling move to ensure that you don't die from it. Like, he he's put got enough good things in place for it, right? He's got enough to take care of like natural disasters and things that happen on accident. And you're out here intentionally putting yourself in danger. He's like, dude, come on. I'm busy. Yeah. Illogical logic. It's like the you people <laughs> that, um, there are also people that believe that it's, you know, it's, against their religion to have glasses or go to the doctor. Oh, um, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like God gave those people brains and helped them get through school or whatever. And and they they're here. And if I don't use that opportunity to correct my sight so I can drive and be a, you know, a decent member of society and contribute to it, um, then I'm not doing my part. So it's that whole I'm gonna, story. I'm gonna do that. I don't know. Uh, you've probably heard it. It's it's the man who's like drowning in a river and a bunch of people come along to try and say a guy in a boat comes along and he's like, hey, I'm here to help you. And he's like, no, God will have me. And then there was like a helicopter. There was like this mm -hmm. whole thing. And at the end, he goes to heaven and God was like, he was like, Dude. God, why didn't you save me? And God was like, I sent you a bunch of people to like help you. What do you want me to do? Like, <laughs> I, I help can't me make it help you. clear. <laughs> yeah. So it just makes you're you're intentionally putting yourself and it's in in that's what it is. You're intentionally like putting yourself in a position of danger in the hopes that your God is going to be paying attention at that moment to save you in, instead of hoping that he's focusing on something that in my mind, he should be helping grow crops or, you know, save you know, mass amounts of people. Like, or save a two-year-old girl who was walking along the road and didn't see the rattlesnake that was there that just snapped out and bit yeah. her. And was minding like, her own business. Like, so stupid. And I think it, it just strikes me. I think the thing that's always bugged me even when I was a kid, because I actually 
I actually had a friend that went to one of these churches, and I went to the church with her once. My mom lost her mind when she found out what kind of church it was. They didn't handle any snakes while I was there. It was just like a worship service. But And I played the spoons, which I never had before and never have since, but it was fun. Uh, I remember that part of it. I always thought, man, how egotistical is that? Like, I am so important that he's going to take time out of his busy schedule to pay attention to me when I'm intentionally doing something to myself. That seems that's a little... That's what it is. That's what little, pisses me off about it, I think. It, it's the, like, like egotistical I'm more important than whatever yeah. else is happening at this exact same time because I need attention right now. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, there's not just... Uh, it, it goes back to being a mediocre white man. And I mean, I would apologize to any listeners that currently believe that um, you're entitled to your beliefs. However, I highly doubt anybody listening here is believing any of this. Let's just be perfectly honest. Um, no, it doesn't I'm not seem like our typical clientele. <laughs> if you're handling, if you think handling snakes is okay, this is not the podcast for you. I'm going to go ahead and tell That's you. Fair. And what you're doing is dangerous and harmful. We're going to explain why. Yeah. So, anyway. Hensley claimed to have been bitten more than 400 times. Man, God must have really been annoyed with him over the span of his ministry. However, and you knew it was coming, in 1955, while conducting a service in Florida, sorry, Jenny, he was bitten and became violently (laughs) ill. He refused medical attention and died the following day because of his teachings. And let's be honest, this is more of a cult following than an actual religious, like, belief. Many still did, and obviously there are some who still do, believe that snake handling was commanded by God for his children. Okay, fuck off. Also, in the Bible verse, by the way, it doesn't say to take it up. It says if you were to, or if you were to drink poison, then you would be saved. They're doing it like it's a career. I think that's a, if it happens, you will be protected, not please proactively do this on a regular basis and take up my time. Anyway. Yeah. They're doing it as if it's like a new skill they're learning, which is so weird. (laughs) Maybe do something different. Like this is giving me Hunger Game vibes with the the, the guy. He drank poison over a long period of time so he would be immune to it. Also, he claims he was bit 400 times. The first thing I thought about uh, when you said it in the first episode, I didn't say it then. I'm going to say it now. The man was illiterate. Are we sure he could count too? (laughs) Up to 400? Probably not. Let's yeah, be honest. Was he keeping tally thought. marks? I'm just shouting at this dude so hard. Well, fuck him. Uh, he's, de- he, he's dead. <laughs> so back to our buddy Glenn. The church he pastored, and both he and Darlene were members of, were followers of Hensley's teachings, and so Glenn kept snakes for their services. And, and again, like I mentioned, this is the they also believed that if uh, they can and should drink poison such as strychnine and battery acid and they acid and they would be fine as well as putting their hands over fire and not getting burned and they li- so they literally played with fire and expected to not get burned so they're just doing darwinism themselves is that right well yeah but unfortunately <laughs> i'm pretty sure they were procreating so um yuck yeah By the time of the reported incident, Darlene and Glenn had been married for over 16 years and had a total of 10 children between the two of them from their current and previous marriages. Some reports said that Darlene was 19 at the time that they were married, so I don't think it's likely she had a previous marriage, although, I mean, maybe she did and maybe she had kids, So, but it sounded like the kids from the previous marriage were Glenn's kids. Well, he was married multiple times before, right? 
Or no, that was uh, the other He was dude. married at least one other time uh, because okay. the woman he was married to, he was currently married to her when he met Darlene and then divorced her to be with Darlene from what okay. I could gather. And instead of divorcing trauma. Darlene, he's just going to kill her with snakes. Apparently, So yeah. he can be with the next one. Okay. And I made this point before... But just to, you know, do this math again. So they were married for over 16 years. She was 19 when they got married. So that makes her 35. And if you recall, Glenn was 47. So there was a 12-year difference between the two of them. I Um, mean, it's okay okay to have a little bit. He was 31 when he met Darlene at 19. And and I I think I, I said it on the first one. When you have that amount of, like, difference in an age gap, and I'm not saying that this is always the case because my grandparents are together and they have a 20-year age difference. But there's a power dynamic that comes into it. And this guy definitely has that, like, power dynamic thought thing. Like, he obviously got together with him, with Darlene because of a power oh, Yeah, power dynamic. is obviously a thing for this person. I mean, it it's fairly easy to see that just with what we're going over. And I'm not even going to go into some of his previous charges and other stuff that he had going on. But I mean, there's a difference between meeting somebody, they're 19 and you're 31, and meeting them at 29 and you're 41. There's a huge difference there. I mean, you've had at least 10 years of being an adult, being on your own, growing as a person. Mm-hmm. Whereas at 19, you're straight out of high school. Like, there's a big difference there. Yeah. I can say from my own experience, I dated a woman. I was 20 years, like, I was 20 years old. I wasn't even able to drink. She was 35. She had a house and a mortgage and a career. And I was living in an apartment, barely able to make rent, floundering in two jobs. And, uh partying and wild and like the the entire relationship was um the power dynamic was it was there Mm -hmm. you know we didn't have anything in common she had like a schedule she she was not like me now um i am now 33 but uh and I still don't I have was, a schedule or my shit together. Uh, <laughs> but, it, uh, you know, imagine me at, in, at 20, you know, and this this person, she was she had her shit together. And it was just you were not, like, is this what it's like when you're 35? You actually have your yeah. shit together. <laughs> I, I truly I remember like when I was 28, 29, I was in, in the office and I was telling my manager, I was like, I am so excited to turn 30 because like. Everybody that I know who is 30, they've got their shit together. And he was like, do you think, do you think you'll have yours together? (laughs) (laughs) Looking back on that, I'm like, oh shit, he, he knew. (laughs) Well, I mean, when you did my, the birthday thing, um, which I love, by the way, that was one of the best birthday presents ever. When you said uh, that I had my shit together, I laughed, like I was on mute, but I laughed so loud. Because I was yeah, like, you were oh, in your twenties at that time. She did not know. <laughs> at and all. I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure. And if this girl, this woman, listens to this, hi, uh, I still think about you sometimes. You were very nice, but um, 
she she probably didn't have her shit together, but she presented herself as if she did, you know. And and to me, it's just like that that giant age gap. There is a power play in it, and there's like uh, an unbalanced portion of the relationship. Because if you're date if you're twenty or in your early twenties and you're dating somebody else in their early twenties, both of you are broke as fuck and you don't know yep. what the hell is going on. Exactly. You know. <laughs> so it's just like. Uh, they say, oh, you're at different points in your life. No, you've you've led an entire lifetime between your 20s and your 30s mm-hmm. because you've, you know, you've you've had giant milestones. You've figured out your career, hopefully, probably gotten a house, you know, had to get a couple of cars at this point. You know, it, the, the things that people in their early 20s, they're just not thinking about because they're thinking about what they're going to wear out Well, I mean, in your 20s, you're doing what you hopefully you're doing what you should be doing, which is making mistakes, dating around, trying to find yourself and what you really want to do in your life. And if you don't have it figured out by your 30s, guess what? Neither do the rest of us. Not really. My 30s is where I did the most growing out of my entire life. But part of that was because I was married from the point of being 19 all the way into my 30s. So I missed out on a lot of the mistakes that you made. I made a really big one. but. I didn't do a lot of the dating. I did all of that stuff while I was in my 30s after my divorce. So, you know, it. I think that's an important time period. And you shouldn't sacrifice that in this type of a situation where you've got somebody that's a completely, like, they're settled. You're missing out on that in-between part that's so important for your growth and for you to know who you are. Yeah. That's my personal and, opinion. And, and for this situation in particular, you know, it, it's apparent and it's obvious that like his first marriage and I'm willing to bet he he married somebody previously who was also very young. But once she got to an age, a.k.a. in her 30s and started thinking and getting smart about things, he was like, nah, bitch, bye. And then he married her. And this the pattern is continuing. And I'm willing to bet. Uh, I don't remember what you said, but whoever he was probably going to go to next, also young. Yeah, we'll we'll kind of gloss over that. Um, but getting back to their relationship, the summer the congregation that they had went on the record saying that there was definite tension between the two of them starting in the late 80s up to the peak, which was this incident in the early 90s. So they weren't, I mean, that's like, what, almost 10 years there? So, I mean, they weren't married for very long before they were already starting to have problems, which is also not surprising. There were reports of Glenn abusing alcohol, which also led to physical violence, as well as infidelities between Darlene. And and it says infidelities between Darlene and other members of the church. This was reported by some, but not substantiated by Darlene, obviously. And there were some reports of relationships with Glenn's children and Darlene from his previous marriage. But again, remember, he's 12 years older than her. His kids are probably closer to her age, let's be honest. Well, and he, again, one substantiated and one denied. So there's, that's kind of hard to know really what was going on too. He's in a position of power and he's able to like manipulate people into saying what he wants. Not just that, but also none of that fucking matters. It doesn't matter if she pulled some dude's dick out and started fucking him right in front of him. There is no excuse for what he did to her. No, absolutely not. So all of that is just mood. 
Like, yeah, why it's would just you even bring sprinkling it Sprinkling of trying to uh, find a justification, and there's not one. Oh, yeah. It, it's Cliff to get notes, him. There's not uh, one. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's to get him a different sentence than like first degree, you know, attempted murder. It's that whole mindset of if I can make her look so bad and it makes it seem like this was a crime of passion. Uh, it I'll makes get, it not so bad. Right. And I'll get like a different sentence. I'll get a lesser sentence or not sentence at all. Because that used to happen. But you know what? Get fucked. It doesn't matter. I would watch videos of her fucking dudes in front of you and still convict you. That's all I'm yeah. saying. I mean, that's not the question. The question isn't, quote, did she deserve it? The question is, did you do it? Did you do it? Oh, you did? Right. It doesn't matter. That's what we're asking right now. So Glenn did go to trial for attempted murder. Surprise. Darlene testified against him, including stating that Glenn had pointed a gun at her when he took her to the cages the second time to be bitten by the snakes. In addition, she refuted all claims of infidelity. She claimed that Glenn was the, was the one that wanted to be with other people, not her. And she further testified that Glenn was trying to make her death look like a suicide by coercing her to write a suicide note before dragging her to the cage the second time. And I think here is where he was processing all day Saturday of fuck. She's got snake bites. Like, if she dies from snake bites, how am I going to explain that? Like, I'm the one that has the snakes. I, I got to come up with something, and that was the best he could do. Because he's not a smart man. No. And then the defense, of course, during the trial, did their best to portray Darlene as having suicidal tendencies and an obsession with snakes during the trial, despite the fact that the pastor of the church of snake handling is the one that owned the snakes and came up with this whole thing in the first place. But oh my okay, guy. I digress. They're your snakes. It, it would be like me going to your house and, and me dying of like a cat, cat attacking me. She was just upset, uh, obsessed with cats. Uh, Samantha's the one with seven cats. Not me. My cats would never kill you. They love you too much. I don't know how. Um, how he's dumb, dumb enough to. He's, yeah. he's too dumb. He wouldn't get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wouldn't. He's he's that dumb sweet type. He would never intentionally. If it happened, it would totally be on accident and unintentional. Yeah. Glenn, of course, testified things like she would attempt to goad him into hitting her or hurting her. That she told him she slept with his two sons from a previous marriage. Again, I already mentioned, one confirmed, one denied. And had been sleeping with other members of the congregation. Again, I don't know that anybody really confirmed that, but that was what he, his claim was. But it was just to try to make him hurt her so she had an excuse to get him behind bars. Uh, it's, uh, it's I hate that, that uh, defense. Like you made me do it. No, you made me. Do you it. have full control over yourself, and if you don't, that's your problem, not mine. I don't care what yeah. I do. It does not give you an excuse. Now, Darlene and Glenn both believed or divorce wasn't an option due to the children from the marriage, which makes sense. We've heard that multiple times. He further stated Darlene had told him she had been bitten Friday, but that she was fine and didn't need anything that there was no evidence of swelling or blood except where a pet raccoon had bitten her a week before and it had scabbed over. Ugh. Pet raccoon. I, <laughs> I get see every time. <laughs> it, it always amazes so me. Appalachian. The pets people have. Pet raccoons, pet possums, whatever. They were out and about Saturday, and she seemed fine all day. They went to bed and fell asleep. Glenn woke up later that night to Darlene missing in a suicide note on the table. 
So that was his drastically different account to what happened. Sure, my guy. And he's completely innocent. He had no idea what was going on. Because you you know what accompanies like multiple snake, like venomous snake bites? A nap. Yeah, that's definitely what I'm doing. Writhing in pain doesn't keep you awake. You got to get that nap in. Uh, But before you need to write, um, you know, your suicide note. Explain it all out. What? Just in case. There was a defense witness that testified on Glenn's behalf, stating Darlene had intentionally gotten Glenn drunk until he passed out, and then she went to the cages to get a snake and have it bite him. However, the snake instead bit her, so then she had to come up with this whole story. And get bit multiple times. (laughs) Multiple times. That was the multiple times because she was holding on to the snake and it kept biting her. Because you don't just drop a snake when it bites. Like... No, get fucked. What? This defense she was, is she so... She was bound and determined she was going to get that snake to bite him. Stupid. This is so... It's so asinine. This is... Oh, my God. And then, again, like, he... He's completely innocent. Again. He didn't even have, mean to drink. She yeah, made him drink and get drunk and bodily autonomy, my guy. Did she, like, shove a funnel all the way down your gullet and just pour... A whole bottle of Jack Daniels because we all know that's what you're drinking. No, or, she, uh, they were doing the shot for shot thing that I um, mentioned before. Where oh, yeah, that's right. They were tossing it over their shoulder. She was tossing it over her shoulder and pretending to take it. And, and he just, he couldn't let her win, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> no. Uh, so when the witness was cross-examined, she denied having a relationship with Glenn because obviously that's the next question. And a later witness came forward in the trial that testified the previous witness had stayed at the couple's home several times without Darlene's permission or knowledge, which made her lose some credibility. Glenn had previous charges, including two felonies and a long rap she- legal rap sheet, which didn't do him any favors in this trial. In the end, after a trial that lasted about two and a half days, And after only about four hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Glenn of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to serve 99 years in February of 1992. He was sent to Bullock County Correctional Facility to serve his time. And just in case you were wondering, because I know you guys were all wondering about his intelligence, in addition, a 30-year sentence was added around 2003 to 2004, somewhere around there, for second-degree escape after he slipped away from a work detail in February of 2003. He would have been around 59. He was found in 45 minutes. So the 45 minutes of freedom that he had cost him another 30 years. Idiot. Good job. He was denied parole in June 2020, and his minimum release date is February 2121, which if all goes the way it should, he won't be alive at that point so the year of our lord and snake handler as far as i know he's still alive and uh serving his sentence oh no that's it and i couldn't find anything on darlene um she basically faded into the background she i guess so i guess as far as i know she's living her life doing her own thing and uh just wants some privacy so i didn't get for her i love that for her i do have to say that um i'm gonna reiterate this um my ending for him is that the snake that he forced mm-hmm. to bite Darlene is going to find its way into the prison and bite him in his cell and he dies that way. Like, How long do <sighs> snakes live? I don't know. This was like almost 20 years ago. So I don't know I don't if know. the same snake would still be alive. I don't know if they're like octopuses or like humans. Uh, it's got to be somewhere in between. 
Snakes live uh, 20 to 30 years, depending so on... Oh, it's uh, He's mm-hmm. probably still out there. He's like, I'm going to get that dude. Fuck this guy. I got you, I Darlene. Love Darlene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. shit. We're all right, so that's all I got. Uh, we're, we're going long. So I can't wait to hear your story again because it was insane the first time, and I can only imagine how crazy it'll be the second time. So... Hey, uh, you're welcome. Also, great job, you know, blah, 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 blah. Let's jump right into it. So today, I'm I'm going to tell you about Sharon Comlos. Kelsey is the one who told me to cover this. And the majority of, like, the information that I got, I got from this episode of I Survived. It is season three, episode six. I didn't put that in my notes. I'm, like, remembering because you told me it was season two, so I bought season two. <laughs> And I remember I watched, that conversation in the chat. I you watched like, the whole episode. No. <laughs> uh, and I was like, Kelsey, I don't think this is right. Uh, <laughs> and then I had to go and buy uh, season three and I watched it there. But now I have two seasons of I Survived that uh, I, can, I can watch. But the majority of the information that I got for this case came from that because it comes directly from Sharon herself. A little bit more information I pulled from like case testimonies and case reports and things like that. But all of that will be in the show notes if you are interested. Reading case transcripts are boring. Um, I'm just going to let you guys know that. So if that's something that you want to go read, it's good nap material. Anyway, our story starts on May 23rd, 1980 in Coconut Creek, Florida. At 11 p.m., Sharon was driving home after an evening with friends. And some articles did say that she was driving home from work during that time. But she was like a an insurance person, like a jester, writer, claims person or whatever. And I don't think they worked until 11 p.m. She was also wearing heels. And I don't think that's really a job for heels. Uh, maybe she was working some overtime. Or it was a really big client and they had to take him to dinner. I don't know. She's it, in the show. It says she was driving home from friends, but a lot of articles said she was driving home from work. Just weird discrepancies like that. There's a couple of things like that in here that we'll get to. So while driving home, Sharon noticed a car behind her with a headlight out. Like it only had one. And it, I'm, I'm assuming like it was like right up on her like bumper or whatever. Because she slowed down and, like, moved over, hoping the car would, like, go around her. Uh, which is what I do. Because I'm all... When somebody's, like, right up on me like that, it makes me so nervous. I'm going to end up having an accident. So, that's what she did. She moved over to allow this car to go around her. When the car moved up next to Sharon's, she says she noticed a flash of light and a popping sound. Quote, it appeared as if someone had thrown a firecracker from the car. And again, I have had firecrackers thrown at my car in Alabama, though. Uh, but Alabama's wild. And so is Florida. This is very true. <laughs> hey, Jenny. But <laughs> I put it in my nose. But Florida is always going to top Alabama because <laughs> <laughs> the next the next thing Sharon feels is a pressure in her head, warm blood running down her face, and everything went pitch black. She couldn't see a thing. There had been no firecracker. Sharon had been shot in the face. 
See, at this point, I feel like if that had happened to me, I would have been like, so am I dead? Like, because my assumption would be that I've been shot and everything's black. So, like, did I just die and I'm just here? Like, what's going on? Yeah, that would be I would me. Be I'd be like, out. oh, my God, finally. <laughs> oh, shit. I wish I hadn't said that because my therapist is going to listen to this. And she'd be like, you okay? <laughs> so, I wanted to talk to you about the last episode. <laughs> hey, I'm fine. No, yeah. Sarcasm. I mean, she... And what's insane to me is like, she doesn't stop driving. She can't see anything. She's got blood running down her face. She's been shot in the in the fucking face. And she's like, okay, I'm I'm driving like 45, 50 miles an hour. I've got to get my car over to the shoulder safely. So she doesn't do what I would do, which is immediately like slam on the brakes, cause a wreck and flip my car. She like takes her foot off the gas and slowly puts it on the brake and turns her wheel just slightly to the right so that her car gets on the shoulder and eventually comes to a safe stop. Completely blind. She's like, okay, yeah, I got this. I'm just going to, you know, safely get my car to the side. Yeah, no, I don't know that I would have slammed on my brakes, but I definitely would have probably swerved or just panicked and put my hands up in the air and been like, all right, oh, well, let's see what happens at this point. Yay, it's over. <laughs> Again, I'm fine. <laughs> so she she doesn't stop there, though. She's like, I got to get help now. But she doesn't like there's no this is before cell phones. This is before roadside assistance is like in your car. So she's like, how do I get help? I know. I'm going to lay on my horn. So she just like lays on her horn, hoping somebody hears it and stops. And it works. She said within moments, a man's voice appeared at the window, pushing her hand off the horn and saying, quote, Oh my God, who did this? I'll take you to the hospital. I'll help you. Sharon couldn't see who this person was, but she said she sounded, he sounded so urgent and concerned. She believed he was there to help her. The man helped her out of the car and he actually, you know, how like you would normally help somebody like put your arm like under their armpits and kind of like help the hold them up. Yeah. He was like, fuck that. And he just like tosses her over his shoulder and like totes her to his car and like puts her in his car. Uh, and he's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, take you to the hospital or whatever. He told her he was a medic in the military and told her it was going to be okay. That head wounds bleed a lot and reminded her to stay calm. He would get her help. And at that moment, you're like, great, I'm safe. Somebody's taking me. Now I can relax. You know, I can I can relax. She said that they drove for a bit and finally the car came to a stop. The man told Sharon they had arrived at the hospital. However, once he helped her out of the car and through the threshold, Sharon quickly realized she was in more danger. The man shoved her through the doorway and onto a mattress. She yelled, quote, this is not a hospital. But the man didn't respond to her. Quote, all I could think was, Fighting, second by second, moment by moment, just to stay alive. Who was this person? What was going to happen next? Ooh. 
not panic. That's what I would be doing. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't have made it out of the car. I, I just can't. I can't do it. It's like I said when we recorded this previously. My husband asked me when we watched that plane wreck movie, would you do you think you would survive? And I was like, I would hope that I was killed in the plane crash because there is no way in hell my ass is going to survive in sub-zero temperatures after being in a plane crash. I just can't do it. So, shot in the head, done. It's over for me. We're not but, we're not all as strong as this lady. Yeah. Um Sharon's got it. I, I wanna get a shirt that says I wish I was as strong as Sharon. Like seriously. Oh, yikes. So as Sharon is laying on the mattress on the floor, she feels a pillow pressed over her face. And this is so it's so weird, like this interaction, because it just doesn't seem normal what am i about nothing to say about this seems normal well yeah nothing <laughs> about this seems normal but like the interaction that's about to happen like the conversation that is about to happen it just doesn't seem like there's i don't know i i'll let you i'll let you judge but it just i watched this multiple times and when she said it i was just like this seems so weird like what the fuck anyways <laughs> so sharon sharon said she didn't know what was happening only that she wanted to continue to breathe like we all do uh, except for kelsey wishes we wouldn't because she has to cut it out <laughs> oh yeah that's <laughs> true regularly. <laughs> also my therapist that was me saying that i wanted to continue to breathe uh <laughs> Oh, uh, she's gonna be so concerned. Um, <laughs> so as she's being suffocated, and I have to remind you, she's been shot in the face. She can't see, and she's thinking, "How how can I continue to breathe?" Like she's thinking, like critically, she's thinking about like how to get out of this situation instead of being like, "I can't fucking see, man," and I'm <laughs> somewhere I don't know. So, but she's thinking about how to get out of it. In the middle of this, she remembers that she has on heels, like high heels, as she's being suffocated. So she's like, I can use that as a weapon. So she reaches down as she's being suffocated. Again, she's blind, shot in the face. Unbuckles one of her shoes, turns it around so the heel is facing towards her and her attacker, and just starts like fucking walloping this dude. Like So brilliant. Boom. Take that, motherfucker. And that works. It works. He loosens like his hold on one side of the pillow. I guess he I guess he did it so he could like take one hand away and like try and stop her from hitting him. Oh, I'm sure it was hurting like a mother. Those, I'm sure. If it's a re even if it's a regular heel, but if it's one of those thin heels, ow. Yeah, I've been smacked with those. Uh, not by <laughs> a person. Um, it was my own doing. I knew that was coming somehow. <laughs> So don't worry about the logistics of that. It's a whole thing. Anyways, it was enough so that she could like stick her hand under the pillow and in between her face and she could she could shove it off of her. And when she shoved it off of her, she, she yelled at him. She's quote, hey, wait a minute. And this is like this is where it gets so bizarre because then he asked her what's wrong. <laughs> 
sir, my guy. <laughs> what do you mean what's wrong? <laughs> uh, so she, she, she tells him... I can't breathe. Like you're suffocating me. And he apologizes. He apologizes to her. What? This person is not okay. He's not well. It's very apparent. Like we on a lot of different levels. You know that somebody's not okay when they attack somebody like that, but you don't ever expect like them to be I don't I don't know. Like this? There's something obviously very, very, very wrong with there's something wrong with anybody that could do anything like this. But that interaction, that's not normal. Well, it's like a whole unreal situation. Like he's not actually recognizing how, for lack of a better term, fucked up this whole situation is that she's been shot and now you've shoved her onto a mattress and you're holding a pillow over her face and suffocating her. And she might die. And yes. then you're like, what's the problem here? And she might have an issue with, with that. Her accommodations? Uh, no <laughs> I prefer my pillows underneath my head I guess you didn't know that um, maybe you like them on top of your face but I prefer to lay on top of my pillows but I appreciate your effort and your enthusiasm it's just it's so weird um, so after after this her abductor began to pace around the room she said she could hear the television on in the background and every once in a while he would stop and hover over her. The whole time she's wondering what's going to happen next. Also, I meant to say this at the top, but I didn't. A trigger warning for rape that we're about to get into. We're not going to get into detail, but if you want to skip ahead 15 seconds, uh, feel free. The whole time she's wondering what's going to happen next. It can't be what I think it is, but eventually it is. He does eventually work up to raping her. And this whole time, he's like, that's another like sign to me that there's something really like off with it. Because he's not talking to her unless she directly addresses him about something. And not even all the time for that. Because if you remember when he shoves her into his apartment, she says, this is not a hospital. He doesn't respond. He's only responding when she directs something to him, like a question or like a statement of discomfort. It's just off. It's very bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. Afterwards, she's again like, you know, what's next? What could possibly be next? But... Next is actually even worse. She says she feels something cold on her neck uh, and going like towards her chest. She said she remained completely silent and that kept him silent. It's just fuck. It's insane to me because what she was feeling was him stabbing her and then taking that knife and running it down her body. He stabbed her up on the chest and then like just sliced her all the way down her torso. She says in in the show that she didn't feel any pain, just pressure and feeling incredibly cold, which is, again, like my assumption was blood loss. And like I said before, and the, the last time we recorded this, it's mind blowing to me how our body reacts to situations and trauma. Like she had enough adrenaline going through her system that and, and there's 
that people report all the time that they don't feel the pain in the situation when they're in it. But she was also able to feel that the blade was cold. And maybe that was just because she felt cold. But it just seems very odd that it's like you can separate yourself from the pain, but you are still present and feeling, but only feeling certain things, which to me is very fascinating. Which and when I when I first was like watching that show, I was like, oh, well, maybe like the bullet hit something in her brain to cause her not to feel pain. And I'm I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for anybody who's listening. The bullet didn't hit anything in her brain. It, it only hit her um, corneas, like her eyes. It does not affect her brain. It didn't affect any type of nervous system. Because I was like, there's no way. But she said she didn't feel any type of pain. And to lay there blinded and have something like that happen to you and not say anything, like knowingly not say anything, make any noise because you want him to stay calm. That is the year of Sharon. Like, she's so strong. Here for it. Need a shirt. Wish I was Sharon. Uh, Well, wish I was as strong as Sharon. So, kudos her. Anyways, she also says that, you know, you don't, uh, you don't accumulate to being blind overnight and that the only thing she really had at that point was her sense of hearing. And what she did hear was an all-night TV station playing in the background and her attacker passing by, like, around the apartment. So, you know, like, when you have the TV on late at night, Nick at Night comes on or what? Like, you're familiar with those shows, especially back then. It always ended oh, yeah. up being like the QVC network or infomercials where infomercials. white people can't do anything, right? Yeah. She said she could feel when he was watching her and when he had left the room, but that he was constantly moving around. She did eventually pass out, though. When she woke up, she heard her attacker breathing heavily at the end of the mattress, like he had fallen asleep with his head on the end of the mattress. So she she started listening to like other noises and she heard traffic outside. She said that there wasn't like a lot of noise, like traffic noise going on. So she assumed it was like either like super late or super early in the morning and like morning traffic hadn't started. And this whole time she's thinking like, okay, I can make a break for it. He's asleep. But her biggest drawback was... I can't see anything. I don't know where the door is. How do I, how do I get out? Like I could get up and I could just like run directly into a wall and that's not going to do anything. So she decides, okay, I'm going to wait until morning when it's actually morning and it's morning traffic and I can hear more traffic. So she eventually like dozes back off. But she's woken up early in the morning. It is, we do know it's morning at this point. She's woken up early in the morning by uh, the rattle of plastic. Like, it sounds like trash bags. But she said that at this point, you know, the world around her had woken up. She could hear morning traffic outside. And this apartment is, it's just yards away from like a major highway. You know, it's not equivalent to 280, but close to it of like, if your apartment was like right on 280, that's what you would hear when you woke up. That's a lot of traffic. That's a lot of traffic. Yeah. Her attacker, 
at this point believe that she was dead or she's assuming that he believed she was dead or near to it because he walks over and he picks up her arm and he's what we assume testing for a pulse. And so she just plays along. She like makes sure that her arm is limp because, you know, even if like you come over and you grab somebody's arm and you pick it up and they're alive, like there's going to be kind of like a muscle response to that. She didn't do any of that. She just let her arm flop around when he dropped it. Again, the woman's blind, shot in the face, been stabbed down her torso. Still has her wits about her. Yeah. And it worked. He eventually just gets ready and she hears his footsteps walking around and then he walks to the door, opens it. And then she hears, hears it close. She hears him like jiggle the door to make sure it's locked. And then she hears his footsteps get farther and farther away. A car start up and then like the noise of the car moving away. And I got to say, like when she's like when she's telling this part of the story, it's so it's so satisfying to watch her tell this part of the story because she's got like she's got like a smirk on her face because, you know, like. She's remembering I've I'm going to get away from this guy. I'm going to best him. And that's like that. It was just like that look of, I know I'm going to do this. I, I remember at this ask. point. I remember where I was at this point. Like, yeah, I, I got this. All of all of this has been all of my put togetherness up to this point has been worth it because I'm going to get out of this. Yeah. And so she waits and she waits until she can hear like his car. The noise of his car join the the noise of like the traffic on the highway and she's like okay i got to i got to i got to do something so she drags herself across the floor into a wall and at the wall she starts just like searching down the wall looking for a door uh but she, it, she like quickly finds it and thankfully, that door was the door to the outside because as soon as like she opens it, she, the the sound of like traffic outside gets louder. She's like, okay, okay, this is outside. Now, I have to remind you, shot in the head, stabbed all the way down her torso, cannot see. She is also fully naked. And she is covered in blood, just covered in blood. I don't know how she was able to even move around at this point after all of that time and all of those wounds. Yeah. She's only a few yards from the highway. She just starts screaming. She's screaming for help. She's standing outside this apartment. She makes her way close to the highway, completely nude, covered in blood, screaming for help. Nobody's stopping for her. And I can't blame them. I don't know that I would stop for a completely naked person covered in blood on the side of the road. I would call emergency services. I, mean, I would be terrified. But yeah, I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would stop. That's a terrifying sight. It's horrific. And as awful as it is, you don't know what the situation is, what caused that to happen. 
And you don't want to enter yourself in that scenario, not knowing any of the details, especially as a woman. Yeah, I, I'm not I, I don't I'm how much help am I really even going to be in that situation? Yeah, that would be my thought. It, did they attack somebody or were they attacked? Am I going to be attacked if I help them? That would be everything that went through my head. You know, we all want to, I know I do, I have thoughts of grandeur and things like that. I'd be like, oh, I'd stop. No, I wouldn't fucking stop. Why do you tell yourself that? It's terrifying. That is terrifying. And nobody stopped for her, you know, but it didn't stop her. She was like, okay, if nobody's going to stop, I'm going to find something on the ground and I'm going to throw it into traffic to make them stop. So blindly, she looks around like she's feeling around on the ground for something to throw into traffic or to like just have to like hold up. And she finds a uh, fishing net and she picks it up and she's just like waving it around, hoping to get somebody's attention. And that didn't work. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to throw it into traffic. Because it's bound to hit somebody's car and it will get their attention. I don't know. Probably at this point, she wasn't. I have to assume that she, and this is my assumption, it's probably not her thought, but she was probably thinking like nobody can see her or something. And that's why she's doing it. Not, not the fact that they weren't stopping because she was a naked person covered in blood. <laughs> you know? Well, and two, I mean, it could just because the sound is close doesn't mean that they can see you. You could be behind a line of trees and it still yeah. be very loud. So that's a reasonable assumption or question. Yeah. Well, so as she's about to like throw this fishnet into traffic, she hears a man's voice from behind her. And he says, quote, oh, my God. Who did this? I'll help you. I'll take you to the hospital. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. You're not going to fool me twice. <laughs> wasn't that, uh, wasn't that, uh, our, uh, president? I, I think that was Bush. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, Bush. The Bush years. Sharon's not falling for this again. She turns to this man and she's like, who are you? What is your name? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where do you live? Like this, like this whole diatribe of questions. And he tells her, my name is Charlie. I'm coming from my home. I'm going to work. I am an air conditioning repairman. The whole time he's talking, she's listening. Like she didn't ask him these questions to like verify who he was. She was asking them so that she could listen to his voice and make sure he wasn't the same man who had abducted her. And thankfully he wasn't. And he helps her. He carefully gets her into his car and takes her to the hospital. She said when the car came to a stop, she heard two nurses opening the door say, quote, oh my gosh, I can't imagine seeing that. Just holy shit. What do you think Charlie's interrogation was like after that? Sir, you had a naked, bloody woman in your backseat. Do explain. <laughs> it wasn't mine. We'd like, was we'd like to have a little bit more information about how this came to pass. Uh, thoughts, words of wisdom. Also, I mean, even a hospital, uh, like, in that situation, going, oh, my gosh, what is happening? Like, that. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah, real bad. 
So they got her on a gurney and wheeled her into the hospital. Sharon said that the nurse told her she was covered head to toe in blood. It was so bad that Sharon had to point to where her injuries were because they couldn't see them. They couldn't tell where she was bleeding from because she, again, blood everywhere. She told them she thought something had hit her near her temple, but what had actually happened was the bullet had entered from the corner edge of her left eye and exited through the other corner edge of her right eye. So it just went, it went through both of her corneas, just destroyed them. That's that's like a one in a million shot, I feel like. Yes. From from a car passing you and shooting across. Yeah, what a shot. Wowza. But she, thankfully, you know, I say thankfully, you don't want to lose your vis- vision, but it didn't hit, you know, anything in her brain. It was simply just her eyes. And at one point she does say, like, I knew the second that I got shot that my vision was gone forever. Like, you always want to hold out hope for something like that. I can't imagine losing my vision. And she said that when the doctor came in and told her, you know, you're going to be blind forever. Because that's something a doctor is going to have to tell you and all that stuff. She said she just told him, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, Mr. States the obvious. Yeah, and he got frustrated about it and like left. Because <laughs> normally you're going to have to like talk somebody through something like that. And she was like, no, you, I didn't have to be talked through it. Like I knew I was just not going to be able to see anymore. She's so resilient. What? Just amazing. She also told them as they're inspecting her that she at one point had felt pressure on her chest. And they told her, yeah, um, hey, you know, like, you've been stabbed and it looks like they they drug the knife all the way down your body. Uh, Yikes. Sharon, like I said, lost her sight completely. She was in the apartment. uh, Some some places said seven hours. Some places said 11. Like she had been abducted and held for seven hours. Some places said 11. In the show, I think it said seven. But a lot of articles said 11. I'm going to give her 12. That's fair. Because it feels like a million years. But she had been abducted by Thomas Edward Rossi. He was caught and convicted of kidnapping, sexual battery, and two counts of attempted second-degree murder. In an appeal after he was convicted, they attempted to mitigate, they attempted to say mitigating evidence shouldn't have been used to convict him. And this was the whole like court transcript that I I talked about. I've linked it in the show notes, you know, go look at it if you want to. But pretty much the defense attempted to have the court remove similar acts that Thomas Rossi committed from evidence. And what was that evidence? Well, on August 21st, 1970, about 10 years previous, Thomas, almost exactly 10 years previous, Thomas Rossi, which makes you think, Has he done this before outside of these two situations? I don't know. Thomas Rossi struck a different woman with his car as she rode her bicycle in New Paltz, New York. He kidnapped her under the pretext of taking her to a doctor. He then sexually assaulted her in the woods and fled. Sounds familiar. Sounds real familiar. 
The defense wanted this suppressed because it would hinder their attempt to get Sharon's case ruled as an insanity defense. Well, yeah, because that shows planning. He's done it before. He has an M.O. Yes. Thankfully, the court said, fuck off. The evidence of the collateral crimes was necessary not only to negate the insanity defense, but also to prove requisite level of intent necessary to convict appellant of the crimes charged. Yeah, I'd say so. Sharon did go on to write a book called Feel the Laughter. This book is really hard to get. I requested it through the library. It will take six weeks to get. But if you try to buy it online, it's real expensive. I mean, I want to support her, but we got to be reasonable. Some places they were selling it on eBay for like 200 bucks. Uh, we don't have that okay. in our budget. <laughs> no, we do not. Oh, man. Uh, she says, even though this horrible thing happened to her, she hasn't lost her humor. The book that she wrote had apparently like humorous things in it. Again, I haven't read it yet. I will eventually. She was kind of like a little comedic person, which I can see. She told a doctor when he said, oh, you're going to be blind. She was like, yeah, I know. Yeah, she sounds funny as hell. She also refused to learn Braille. This this is also funny. She She refused to learn Braille because she was like, I haven't needed it before. I'm not going to start using it now. Like... Because I mean, I guess that's fair. <laughs> there's programs like when you lose your sight or something like that uh, later in life, there are programs that they will give you to learn these things. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. No. <laughs> yes. So after she was blinded, she did have a hard time getting by. She had three kids and could no longer work in her career. And at one point, I'm not sure if it was after she was blinded or if it was before, but at some point her husband divorced her too. Wow. Class act. So she had like no support. And for five years after the attack, there was like this whole process when you have something like this happen where there are programs in place that will pay you as a victim, the state will pay you. Because you've been a victim of crime and all of that stuff outside of like disability and all that stuff. But it took five years and the she only got paid out $10,000, which is nothing. No, not after everything she went through. Yeah, she couldn't work in her career anymore. But thankfully, eventually she did start working as a, um, a you know, like a public speaker and advocating for, like, victims of crime and crime prevention. And at one point before, like, in between that time, the five-year period, she had spoken at over 250 different events. So she was, like, fucking killing it. And then, of course, she wrote the book. But, yeah, you know, when you go to donate to different things, remember to donate directly if you possibly can, especially directly to victims of things like this don't donate to advocate programs well i mean do if you want to but it takes a long time to pay them out way longer than is necessary especially in a situation like that so a lot of red tape yeah a lot of paperwork a lot of justifications required so all of that takes time yeah so that was sharon comlos our hero for sure like 
badass of the year, I think. The year of Sharon. Like, wow. Yeah. Hoo wee. I tried to get that Good job. as fast as I could. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this one went a little we long. We were just chatty this time, but it's fine. Yeah. I was very chatty in this episode. Anyways. <laughs> That's it. Oh, we forgot to do the hundred. We forgot to do the hundredth episode thing at the beginning. Whoops, Kelsey, sorry, Kelsey. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, hundredth episode stuff. You guys have heard it a million times. We're not going to reiterate it. You know what to do. Uh, this has gone on long enough. This episode that is. So we love you. We mean it. Okay, bye. Lorraine.